0: The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. ...in the Holy of Holies in the temple than elsewhere. Herman Bavink, the great theologian, spoke of God dwelling in a special way at certain times and among certain people. So can't we admit that there are times whenever we seem to experience God's presence in a more significant way than at other times? How do we know if and when we are experiencing God's presence? Is it possible for you or for I to experience God's absence? Over the past few weeks, we have been bombarded by pictures and videos of the war in Ukraine. Over 10,000 people have died. Over 2 million have fled the nation to become refugees. That represents about 5% of the total population of Ukraine. Now... Almost 35 million Ukrainians claim to be Christians. So has God removed his special presence from Christians who are living in the Ukraine? On the other hand, has God let me experience his presence in a greater way than those in Ukraine? You see, this morning, I look at my life and my life looks nothing like those in Ukraine. I've never experienced war. I've never been displaced or forced to seek refuge somewhere else. Do you know what my life looked like this morning? It looked like waking up, going downstairs, making my nice pour-over coffee, walking into my office, opening up my leather Bible, and sitting quietly and peacefully while I read God's Word and prayed. Never once did I wonder if I would survive through the day. But is this evidence that God's special presence is with me in a way that it is not with others? Does my safety and security and success equate with god's blessing this morning i want us to see from genesis 39 through to 41 that suffering is not evidence of the lord's absence and worldly blessing can blind us to god's providence this morning's message will be structured into three main sections one section for each of the three se- or each of the three chapters we have just read in Genesis 39 the Lord shows kindness to Joseph in Genesis 40 Joseph wants Pharaoh to deliver him in Genesis 41 Pharaoh empowers Joseph now I'm going to reserve my comments about how we might understand and apply these chapters until the very end. Because I really want us to follow the story as it progresses, without chopping it up into parts, okay? So first we see in chapter 39 that the Lord shows kindness to Joseph. Now last week the focus was on Judah, Chris preached an excellent message on Genesis 38, but if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 37, and it ended with Joseph being stripped of his clothes, thrown into a pit, and eventually sold to a group of Ishmaelite traders. Joseph's brothers dipped his ornate robe in an animal's blood and then used the blood-covered robe to trick Jacob, their father. Believing that Joseph was dead, Jacob went into deep mourning and refused comfort from anyone. But chapter 37 ended with a brief hint of what was to come. It said that Joseph had been sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph has been enslaved into the home of an Egyptian official. Genesis 39 verse 1, if you look at it, restates what we already know as if to reset the story. After we've had this brief interlude that focused on Judah, now we reset the stage. Joseph has been sold to Potiphar in Egypt. But notice verse 2. It immediately tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. As Joseph went down into Egypt, the Lord did not abandon him. And what's interesting is it says, The Lord was with Joseph. This is God's name, Yahweh. This is not a generic word for God. There are plenty of generic words for God in Hebrew, but this is God's covenantal name. The name Yahweh appears eight times in chapter 39 and emphasizes that the Lord knew of Joseph's situation. The Lord was aware of Joseph's plight, and he remained with him. But Joseph was enslaved in a foreign land. Despite his successes, he never ceases to be a slave under a non-Israelite master the narrative emphasizes that they continue to see Joseph as an outsider. He's called a Hebrew twice. Now the term Hebrew actually only appears 35 times in the Bible. But 33 of those times, it is used as a way to describe an Israelite from a non-Israelite perspective. Joseph is a foreigner slave. But in the midst of this, we read over and over that the Lord was with him. He was given authority over the other slaves. He was given responsibilities throughout Potiphar's house. The Christian Standard Bible translates verse 5 as saying that Potiphar, quote, put Joseph in charge of his household And all that he owned, end quote. He's still a slave, but he's a trusted slave. You see, when Joseph's in charge, everything goes well for Potiphar's house. And so Potiphar gives him more responsibilities, and the Lord remains with Joseph. But look at verse six. We have a shift to focus on Joseph's appearance, he was attractive. Potiphar's wife develops an attraction for him. In last week's passage, Judah went to Tamar, who he thought was a religious prostitute, and said, Let me sleep with you. In today's passage, Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and says, Sleep with me. It's not a suggestion. Joseph has no power. He has no authority. He gives her two arguments in response. First, this would dishonor his master. This would dishonor Potiphar. Second, this is an evil against God. Now here Joseph uses a generic term for God. One that wouldn't have offended Potiphar's wife. She has no idea who Yahweh is. So he uses a generic term. Day after day, she persisted until finally, one day, she decided to rape Joseph. When nobody was looking, nobody was around, she grabbed Joseph's clothes, pulled him to her, and said, Sleep with me. Joseph did the only thing available to him. She ripped off his clothes and he fled out of the room and out of the house. Once again, Joseph has been stripped of his clothes. And once again, Joseph's clothes are used to trick someone else. They're used to trick the other men of the house, And then they're used to trick Potiphar. Potiphar becomes enraged. He captures Joseph and imprisons him. Joseph says nothing. What could he say? Joseph had no authority. He couldn't contest his accusations. So he's thrown into the royal prison, and once again, he's left to rot. But look at verse 21 this is a key verse it says but the lord yahweh was with joseph and showed him steadfast love the word translated steadfast love by the english standard version refers to the lord's commitment to his covenant promises the lord remained faithful to joseph because the lord was faithful to his promises and his covenant with Abraham. It was the same promise that was given to Isaac and then to Jacob. And so in Genesis 35, 11, God spoke to Jacob and said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a multitude of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body." The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Kings, a nation, a multitude of nations will come from Jacob's descendants. And Joseph remains one of those descendants whether Jacob realizes that he's alive or not. God knows, and God remains steadfastly committed to his covenant promises. So Genesis 39 ends with Joseph once again stripped of his clothes and thrown into a pit. Just like Jacob, Potiphar had favored Joseph, but just like Jacob, Potiphar was deceived by Joseph's stripped garment as the narrative arc moves down from his brothers down into slavery and now down into prison the lord was with joseph why because the lord was faithful to his covenantal promises Now, I want us to think about how the Lord remained with Joseph in the midst of his suffering. We're going to discuss that more later. But first, let's continue to work through the passage. You see, things begin to change in chapter 40, where Joseph wants Pharaoh to deliver him. Look in your Bible at chapter 40. It begins with Joseph in prison after the previous events. The Hebrew here is ambiguous about how long he had been in prison, and just says after these things it happened, the passage describes the royal cupbearer and the royal baker offending Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. What did they do? It doesn't say. Honestly, it's irrelevant. What they did doesn't matter to the story what matters is they did something and now they are in prison with joseph because this story is about joseph and about the lord what matters is now they're in they're in prison with joseph and joseph is appointed to serve them as an attendant let's not forget even in prison joseph is still a foreigner slave and they are still Egyptian elites. Both of these Egyptian elites have a dream. They look downcast. So Joseph asks them why they are disturbed. They replied that they have no one to interpret their dreams, which would have been standard for an Egyptian person in the royal court. So Joseph asks an important question. He asks, doesn't a god interpret dreams once again he uses an ambiguous term for a god that wouldn't have offended them but think about this for a minute what right does joseph have to critique their statement joseph here is claiming access to god from their standpoint this would have seemed ridiculous If Joseph has access to God, why is he in a prison in Egypt? Even more, what right does Joseph have to claim that he can interpret them? Everything about this seems ridiculous. But as we learned in Genesis 37, Joseph is never afraid to make seemingly outlandish and even seemingly arrogant statements. But nobody else is around to help. Who else can these Egyptian elites turn to? Why not turn to this Hebrew slave? But Joseph interprets their dreams, and he does it rightly. The events that he predicts, they happen just as Joseph said that they would happen. But before these Egyptian elites find out whether Joseph's interpretations will come true, notice that Joseph begs for their help. If they are freed, would they please show him kindness and mention his case to Pharaoh? Now this too seems outlandish. Why would two rejected Egyptian elites have the authority to speak to Pharaoh and ask for Joseph's release. Why would the Pharaoh listen to them above their own captain of the guard? But Joseph makes the most of his opportunity. They're desperate for an interpretation to their dreams, and Joseph is desperate for freedom. Now this is the first time in the entire story that we get Joseph's perspective on everything that has happened. He says he was stolen from a foreign land and done nothing to deserve being placed in this, what's the word? Pit. The word pit here is the same word used in Genesis 37 to describe the place where the brothers placed him. But Joseph's interpretations come true. The Pharaoh releases the royal cupbearer and restores him to power. He kills the royal baker. But what about Joseph? Joseph remains in the pit. In Genesis 39, Joseph's situation progressively got worse. Imprisonment in Egypt is a downgrade from enslavement in Egypt. But the Lord was with Joseph. In chapter 40, though, Joseph's situation stays the same. He begins the chapter and he ends the chapter in this Egyptian prison. But here he places his hope in the Egyptian elites and Pharaoh but at the end of the chapter he's still just another forgotten prisoner in Egypt did you notice what was missing in this chapter chapter 40 never mentioned that the Lord was with Joseph after making mention of it eight times in chapter 39 Isn't this omission interesting? It makes you wonder, is God still pulling the strings? Or is Joseph now trying to take control of his own destiny? One scholar notes that unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, quote, Joseph never has a dialogue with God. He is never spoken to by God. He is never portrayed as having prayed or spoken to God at all. Abraham Kuravilla notes, though, that the literary absence of God is not the same as the literal absence of God. Trust me, the Lord is still at work. Whether Joseph acknowledges the Lord or not. So let's keep seeing what happens in the story. In chapter 41, the situation changes drastically. Pharaoh empowers Joseph. Joseph goes from being a prisoner to the prime minister of Egypt. Chapter 41 recounts Joseph's rise to power. Like the Egyptian elites, the Pharaoh has a dream. In fact, he has two dreams. Now these two dreams are told three times in chapter 41, which is one of the reasons why chapter 41 is so long. Pharaoh first tells his dream to his best magicians and wise men. This was standard Egyptian protocol. Nobody can interpret the dreams, though. And so at just that moment, the royal cupbearer remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh about him. Now, royal cupbearers were a very high and trusted position. If the cupbearer vouches for Joseph's skill, then the Pharaoh would have trusted him. So he calls for Joseph. Joseph is going before the king of Egypt, so he changes his clothes. But notice that he also shaves. Israelites wore beards, but Egyptians did not. You wonder if Joseph doesn't want anything to get in the way of his big opportunity. This is it. Everything depends on things going just right. Joseph hears the dreams. He confirms that the two dreams have the same meaning and warns Pharaoh of a coming global famine. Egypt must be prepared. Joseph suggests placing a wise man over the land to administrate the situation. Now, of course, the best wise men in Egypt have just failed at even interpreting the Pharaoh's dream. And so the Pharaoh asks, can we find a man like this? In whom is the Spirit of God? To quote the ESV. But don't be confused here. Pharaoh isn't speaking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Pharaoh's a pagan and worships the Egyptian gods and goddesses. So I think here, if you look in your English Standard Version, there is a footnote. The footnote is certainly more accurate here. Pharaoh recognizes in Joseph a spirit of the gods. So Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. He will become the prime minister of Egypt and preserve the nation from the upcoming global famine. Now the Lord has not been mentioned, but every biblical story is about the Lord. Either about his plans or about his character. For God to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Jacob and his sons must survive this global famine. That's why Joseph needed to rise to power in Egypt. He now has the power and the authority to protect the family and provide for them in Egypt. Joseph's rise to power provides a way to keep God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. But this is where there's a twist. There's more to this story than just Joseph rising to power. Notice all of the details about his rise to power. Genesis 41 tells us so much. Joseph has become an Egyptian elite. He's clothed in the finest Egyptian clothing. He's decked out in the finest Egyptian jewelry. A chain around his neck, a ring on his finger. He rides upon a chariot like Pharaoh himself, and the people bow down before him when the authorities yell out, bend the knee. He's given an Egyptian name, probably after a pagan god. He's married into an Egyptian family, and not just any Egyptian family, The family of the highest priest in all of Egypt. The family of Potipharah, priest of On. He is not just any pagan priest. On, which was later called Heliopolis, is where the sun god, Ra, was worshipped. Every time that Joseph's wife Asenath is mentioned in the Bible, it mentions her pagan father. And so at this point, Joseph looks nothing like Jacob's favorite shepherd boy from the beginning of chapter 37. Gerhard von Rath states that Joseph has become completely Egyptian. And he's right. Let's not forget that this is the Egyptians who will enslave the Israelites. The Israelites were chased out of Egypt by chariots that looked just like Joseph's. They were forced to bow the knee when Egyptian lords came through. Joseph's family now worships the same pagan god that Yahweh would mock mark, would mark with... Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.